the snake in a room podcast and it's starting soon with matt hutchinson gonna be having fun with some comedians think it's starting right about now hello I'm Matt Hutchinson. Welcome to the Snake in the Room podcast. This episode is with Ollie Horn, who lives in Fukuoka, but he's originally from the UK. This was recorded after a Brexiteers show at the Fringe Club in Hong Kong back in January 2017. Nick Milnes, who hosted that show, pops up now and again. We recorded a busy outdoor Lebanese bar while Ollie ate hummus, so it's a bit noisy, but I think it's still worth putting out, so please enjoy and see if you can spot the edit points. You're listening to the Snake in the Room podcast. Are we rolling? Yes, we are. I wish to make it clear that I don't conduct every interview I do whilst eating. <laughs> <laughs> I've only done two so far and there seems to be a theme. I want this to be known that this is a special exception. And it's special for two reasons. That it's you, and we haven't had much time, Mm. and the food is hummus that I can't get in Japan. Yes, you live in Japan now. Yeah. Lovely segue there. Are you? I found Nick's phone. I found Nick's phone. Nick's phone. Phone. Looks like this phone. Mm. Is it Nick? Is this your phone? Is it smashed? Oh no, it's a new phone. Yeah. <laughs> just deliberately to confuse the two plates. Nick plays. It's, it's gone out. It's a bit off. Isn't it? It's not quite. Okay. Um. So it's more than we have started. I'm presuming. Yeah, yeah. Nick Mills has joined us. We should, we should give some context. Okay, we just finished a show at the Fringe. The Fringe well. Club, not Fringe the Edinburgh Fringe. Not the Edinburgh Fringe, Fringe Club, Fringe, Hong yes. Kong. In Hong Kong. Which by any metric, as long as you restrict those metrics to a few, <laughs> was, 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 was a success. success. It was a great show. Yeah. And it was a, it was a really good crowd in the, in the variety. Like it, it, I know some rooms in Hong Kong. They attract the same kind of people, the same kind of people that are coming from the same kind of jobs, or the same kind of background. Mm. I, th- I think, I know it was a huge mix. It wasn't just young students, it wasn't just locals, it wasn't just rich expats. Where the hell you found them? Right? On the streets. <laughs> no, literally. I put posters <laughs> on walls in the streets and I handed out flyers. Um, well, they're very nice streets, they're middle class streets. It works, isn't it? People say this about Edinburgh, that, um, you know, despite the fact that almost everything else in the world has moved online, it seems the only genuinely effective way to get people into your Edinburgh show, if you don't have a profile, is just fine. There seems to be no other, everyone I've spoken to has said yeah. they haven't found a better way. And it's more effective, of course, to fly your own show than to get someone to fly a phone. Yeah. I found that when I um, was in university, we worked at the Live Music Society. Like, yeah, anytime you fly your own show, it just gave you a chance to talk to people. Sometimes it's a bit embarrassing. It's embarrassing, I'll tell you what's embarrassing but, for me. But then you can use that, can't you? It's, yeah, that's it's, true. It helps wear down the. Unfortunately, the picture that's the only good quality picture that the person who designed the book flyers has is a picture of me two years ago where I was objectively. Thank you. Lumber. Food has just arrived. Well, um, what, what, a, what a perfect point to note that uh, 
Yeah, I was objectively thinner back then. Plus the picture, maybe. Plus, plus the. <laughs> Sorry, I ordered a large one. I'm not... <laughs> plus, plus the um, the photo just somehow looks slimming. Basically, I'm giving out flyers where people. The first thing they respond is, "You, you put on weight, mate." <laughs> so I was like, "Well, on yeah. the streets of Fukuoka." Yeah. <laughs> Pounding the pavement while they point out my pounds <laughs> or kilograms <laughs> for listeners. So I let the listener know that you run Comedy Fukuoka. I do. I do. In the city of Fukuoka. I do. I don't really feel like I run it so much anymore because no? there's, there's, well, there's two or three people that um, are kind of really involved in it and care about it. And that means that, you know, sometimes, well, you know, for example, uh, an improv troupe kind of spun off from the stand-up. Uh, and that's entirely run and managed by uh, one of my friends up there, which is great. Um, you know, the, the bar where we do our open mics, the owner of that, is really, really interested in the success of Comedy Fukuoka, so mm-hmm. he does a lot. So I guess I, I founded it, but I don't feel now so much that I'm running it. Okay. Kind of self-sustained. It's running all by itself, not all by itself, but... Well, no, I mean, when it comes to showtime... something. Yeah, when it comes to showtime, I'm still um, busting a gut trying to get people to come, but... Mm. Um, I'm kind of confident that if I were to... Uh, be outside of the country for any period of time that a, sh- a show could happen and it would be good. Yeah. That's kind of what I wanted to watch. And when did you get, when did you move to Fukuoka? Was Fukuoka the first city you lived in in Japan? Yeah, so it wasn't the first city I ever visited. I first visited Japan as an exchange student um, for a couple of weeks when I was still at school in sixth form. And I went to, you probably know these When you were in sixth form? I know, I was really lucky. Um, I, I spent two or three weeks in a, in a school up there. Um, and because I, because my family also took a pupil, all that really you had to pay for was the flight, right? Mm-hmm. Everything else was... Real homestay. Yeah, it was homestay. Um, and it was great. And I kind of, I look back and I think it was definitely formative in my kind of set, setting up, uh, what, do you, what would you say, setting up some kind of foundation in Japan, you know, from there yeah. I met my first Japanese friends, I okay, started, yeah, yeah, yeah. started to understand the country, but I still at that time thought, well this is just a kind of a fun folly, mm-hmm. right? I, I, would, I was never, at sixth, at sixth form in particular, I was never thinking I would go and live in Japan, I was never um, never really that interested in anything Japanese, and I know mm-hmm. that sounds weird, but I know a lot of people you work in a Japanese school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you must I have... I also went to Japan for uh, my gap year as well. Right. So like after sixth form, in sixth form, I would, that was the time I was applying and planning to get out there. But don't you find that, particularly Japan compared to other Asian countries, the, ex- the expats that go there tend to go because there's some... Aspect they're Japanophiles, right? right? Or is there some aspect of Japan they really yes. like? They're hugely into manga or anime or... Uh, Even it's shamis- shamisen or enka music. Yeah, design music or something. They want to do kendo. They want to do right. aikido. And that's great. And, and, and I think, you know, I definitely know people that they, you know, they've started learning kendo or karate. Mm. They learn the word sensei. They learn ichini san. And then that's kind of the, the catalyst for learning Japanese. It's great. I never had any of that, and I kind of regret it. In the, it's quite embarrassing when I, I'm being asked by Japanese people, you know, why? Oh, why'd you come here? And I wish I had some really interesting kind of pivotal moment in my life. Mm. Oh. 
but it's, it's like it's just kind of circumstance. I learned the language because at my school we had to pick two languages, and I picked French and Spanish. Didn't like Spanish, changed to Japanese. It was all um, you know, it was just kind of luck that my school had Japanese, had a really good Japanese teacher who I was very fond of. And then yeah, then when I graduated uni, and I thought, okay, now what? Japan's gonna bear that that yeah. that uh, that existed. So after university, what is it, like a two month period, three month period that you went to Japan? Like, did you have anything like set before you went there? Yeah, I did. So I was very lucky that um, the Japanese government has a program um, called the Mixed Scholarship, which gives you um, money for postgraduate research courses. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a generous stipend and it's a very. Um, it's a really, really good program because you can basically do what you want as long as it's within a certain guidelines. So you can study for a master's degree, you can uh, do uh, research, publish a paper, um, you can even study the language for a bit. So I did six months, of, six months of Japanese language training, then I entered a master's course, uh, and then whilst doing that, I also did some teaching in the faculty. And yeah, it's great. I, I can't, um, I can't thank the opportunity enough, really. Actually, before I went to Japan, I came to Hong Kong. That's yeah, the Hong Kong thing. I graduated, went straight to Hong Kong. At that stage, I was keen on being a lawyer, so I, I did some work. Well, I, I worked at a school teaching English to earn some money. Yeah. Then using that money, I then paid for accommodation to work at the uh, court, where I was an assistant to a judge for a few weeks. And then, yeah, moved on to Japan. But why Hong Kong? Why was that? Uh, that's a funny story. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> why Hong Kong? Put a button in there. Well, there was, there was there was someone that I wanted to meet. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I think I remember you talking about this before. Oh. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, we'll move on. <laughs> you were was, you were president of the Oxford Review, right? No, no, no. no? You worked. You were affiliated with the Oxford. Well, yeah, I, I hosted um, some of the shows in my final year. Okay. Um, goodness me, no, I wasn't president. In fact, and the Oxford Review was, was, was an interesting part of my um, undergrad career. And when I first arrived at Oxford, there was basically no stand-up in the room. It was all sketches. And I had uh, no interest really in doing sketch comedy. Mm. Then what happened was I went on a year abroad. I left Oxford for a year, then came back. And then when I came back, suddenly this kind of stand-up scene had started. And there was a couple of... Uh, first year students who were reading into it and kind of putting on shows. Yeah. And so I kind of came back and this world that didn't previously exist was there. Um, so no, there was there. There was. It would have been impossible for me to even consider presidency because I wasn't even part of the kind of core That's team. Good. I wasn't even okay. part yeah, of true. any committee. Mm. But what happened was because there was there were so few people doing stand up and everyone wanted to do sketches when there was an option to host the show. Uh, they would often ask me because you know I wasn't part of any sketches, so I, I could just fill in between the gaps, and and that was really good. That was really good because after my first couple of shows, I was getting lots of stage time. Because obviously, you know, you do you do little bits in between each sketch, and yeah. Uh, and I'm still I'm still in touch with some of the people that I met at the review, and some of them have gone on to do comedy professionally, and you know, uh, I stayed. The reviewers were kind that they stay in the reviews flat in Edinburgh last year, mm -hmm. so I crashed on their couch for a while. Um, but no, I was never part of the 
of the institution or the committee. Uh, I was very much on the fringe of it because yeah, I didn't, 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 didn't do any sketches. You're on the fringe. Um, were there ever any, uh, like you say, imposters getting into the review? So I heard about like uh, Tim Key getting into the footlights, mm. sneaking in. I'm not sure how long I've seen I'm not sure if it's always been like this, but the quality that the review had when I was there was anyone who performs under the auspices of a review show can claim that they're a member, in the sense that, you know, there wasn't a kind of in and an out. And so I remember the, the, some of the shows which I hosted, there were people who weren't affiliated to the university at all, they just lived in the city, but wanted the stage time, yeah. and they were allowed to go on the show. I mean, maybe they wouldn't claim they were... Just, I just wanted to drop the stool there, because... Um, if I drop the stool, I mean like an actual stool, not... not yeah, you didn't poop not, on the floor. Not defecating. No. Uh, an actual bar stool. No, I mean, I don't know enough about the, about the Cambridge um, Footlights and Pets Review, but I do understand that the Cambridge Footlights is a little bit more uh, strictly structured. Mm -hmm. So I think such thing as an imposter could happen. Yeah. Whereas I think the, the review's imperative, certainly when I was there, and the presidents that, that were looking over it when I was there were very very open to anyone performing with them uh, and um, they de you know they would definitely support shows from people that weren't even financially people that weren't even on the committee mm. Mm. it was great it was great and, and, and every every couple of weeks there would be a, a compilation show of new material yeah. and it would just be, it would be brilliant I would love it just brilliant brilliant comedy uh, the quality sketch and stand up and, and stand up and then songs as well. Um, so, no, not improv because Oxford has some amazing improv troops. Uh, a couple of them actually, and some of them. Uh, yeah, so improv was definitely his own thing. Yeah, and some of the Oxford improv was exceptionally high quality. I'm not the hugest fan of improv normally. By that I mean I've seen lots of really bad improv. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, like for example, the Oxford Imps. Um, I think they've been here for like ten years now. Absolutely brilliant. They take it so seriously. They have really stringent auditions. You talked about um, staying on the couch or at the apartment of the reviews in yeah. Edinburgh. Yeah. So give us more details about that, please. Good. Uh, so. Um, I, because I graduated a few years ago now, I'm kind of like the old weird guy. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I, oh, him, right, yeah. Like people that were in their first year might have vaguely seen me when I was in my running. So, so I think it's probably the last year I could do it. Uh, but the Oxford Review every year uh, rents a big flat for all their comics. And this year they put on two shows. Uh, their show at the Assembly, which is a sketch show with uh, presidents, which was excellent, I enjoyed it. And then a free show um, where it was a mix, mix of sketch and stand-up. And then every day they would have a guest headliner, um, which uh, I did a couple of times. And then also they had different hosts uh, every day, which I did a couple of times. Yeah. So I did, I think I did like a week and a half with them, maybe two weeks. But it was great because obviously the most expensive part about going to Edinburgh is the, is the accommodation. Yeah. So to have that was, um, I mean, it's those moments when you realise, oh, that's privilege. Oh, right, that's right. <laughs> that's the leg up, and it's true, right? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be the fact that just because I went to an institution I can participate in Edinburgh where I don't have financial means but you know that's the way it is and I'd be mad to not do it and then some people have just you know 
an aunt or a cousin who lives in Edinburgh. Right, yeah, I mean, yeah. Life's not fair, but um, uh, it was definitely those it's definitely those kind of moments where I'm like, oh, yeah, it's privilege is right, and this isn't fair. Right. Uh, but I'm not sure what you can do about it, really. I'm not sure if there's any... Yeah, can we start a charity? Well, there is, actually. Arts Emergency, Josie Long's charity. Uh, I'm not sure they... I'm not actually sure whether they would go as far as providing accommodation, um, but I'm not sure. I know that there are schemes um, in Edinburgh for kind of subsidising performances. Yeah. I know, it's worth thinking about, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, could we just set up a campsite? People do. Yeah. People sleep in their car. Yeah. But accommodation in Edinburgh is obscenely expensive. Mm. You know, I'm I'm sure that people are kind of paying off their yearly mortgage in the month of uh, August. And of course, it's, it sounds a bit um, it sounds a bit like oh come on. But for the people that are doing a show a day, or normally two or three shows, right? Yeah. You need a really good bed to sleep in. You know, you need you need otherwise you get ill. So when I participated last year, I was just doing spots, you know, I was doing the odd 10, ten minutes here and there, I, I hosted a show at midnight, but you know, I wasn't tired by the end of the day, but imagine if you're doing an hour show, you're putting your whole energy into it every single day, plus inevitably spots elsewhere, to then go back and have to sleep on a sofa for a month, is, it's worth shutting out for. Yeah. Have you been to any other festivals around? No, so like, I've been checking out. Was it Australia? So like, was the Melbourne. French world starting out? Melbourne and Adelaide has one too. Yeah, there's at least three festivals there. And then like, there's a World Busker's Fair in New Zealand. Christchurch. Well, there's, there's, like, there's like two or three dozen festivals in the, U- in the UK alone, right? Right, right. Yeah. Almost every, every, every city. In, uh, what's it? Uh, not Bath. Bath has one. Bath. Um, what's it? The one with the pebble beaches. Brighton. 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 Yeah. Well, Brighton's very famous for me, isn't it? Mm. No, I haven't. Well, I haven't taken an hour show to a festival yet. That's my plan this year. Yeah. But I'm going to chicken out. I'm sure people who are listening to this who are into comedy will know this. But there's such a thing as a cheats hour in Edinburgh. Did you know about this? Oh, what's a cheats hour. Cheats hour. Oh, yeah. Do you talk about like a jukebox hour? No. No. Well, kind of. Basically, if you do more than 50 minutes, then you're eligible to, do, to uh, win the awards. Newcomer, yeah, Newcomer yeah. awards or these kind of things. Yeah. And so everyone advises for your actual first hour, your actual first hour, don't do more than 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Because the moment you go over, then you've kind of, you've burned, you've burned that, you've burned that PR camera. opportunity, you've yeah. burned everything. Yeah. And it's true, I'm, I'm sure that my show, well I'll, I'll try my best, but I'm sure it won't be as good as it could be in five years time, yeah. more experience, whatever. And I'm, and I'm aware of this. So um, yeah, I'm doing, I'm cheating and I'm going to do 40 minutes, which actually I think is right. I, I don't know why an hour is the standard, I'm sure there is some reason, uh, but I'm, I think 40 minutes seems right. Like tonight I did what, 35 minutes, and that seemed right, right? The audience weren't fed up with me yet, uh, but you know, I felt like I had enough time to explore and an hour is a really long time, isn't it? So, uh, and then the plan is to have a, a guest. Uh, Doing ten minutes every day. Is that gonna be on? Uh, well, I've applied. I've applied to. to um, you know, there's lots of different free fringe organisations. I've applied to one of them. Okay. Uh, so, well, if this is audible, we'll cut it in and drop it in later. Yeah. Well, just um, find me. On, I don't know if anyone wants to see it. Find me on Facebook or something. I'm sure yeah, I can yeah. tell you. And if and if for whatever reason my application was unsuccessful, or whatever 
um, see in the street. Exactly. I'll, I'll do the full 40 minutes wherever you are. I'll go to give me a house. call. Get in the apartment. So who did that? Brendan Murphy. Uh, I know. Also, was uh, who's the alcoholic one from Arizona? Uh, it's on screen oh. wipe a lot. Um, uh, I think I think I know you're talking about. It might be libelous to say. <laughs> no, I mean, you no, know, he says, my name's Doug Stanhope, and that's why I drink. Doug Stanhope always does uh, right, okay. apartment well, shows, right? Yeah, well, Because uh, he will directly connect with his audience over to his internet. Right, yeah. Um, it's, it's a funny... I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'd like to perform to just five people. I think I'm. I, I don't think, think the living room shows. The uh, living room shows he does just five people. I think it's more like twenty oh, people okay. crammed into a living room. Right. Well, I'm thinking about Japanese living rooms. We should only. Yeah. Five, <laughs> should only <laughs> be five, 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 yeah. five people. <laughs> Do you ever see that? <laughs> this is just, we're going to nerd out for a bit. Um, who is it? Uh, David Adocty for his de- was it David Adocty's mild his RTA, RTE show. Yep. Uh, his mild adventures. I think the last one was him doing an album record in his own flat with 30 people. Great. And one guy's like sat on the toilet. Oh, throughout brilliant. The show. Yeah, the thing I, I because I'm I'm not that experienced in relative terms in stand-up. I still like the theatre of stand-up. I, I I think it's probably a psychological thing, but I think I need the intro music, the light, the mic stand, yeah, like all of these props to kind of protect me. Because I do think that what we do is is entertainment, right? I, like, I think it's a fallacy to think that this is just people speaking on an equal level. You have to create this at least illusion of status or kind of spectacle. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think obviously the better you get and the more confident you are, the closer your onstage voice is, is the same as your real voice. I'm sure you know you can, with complete confidence, get four people and go, okay, I'm gonna make you laugh now. Uh, or no, more than that, I want you to listen to me for an hour. It's probably how these people listen to the podcast do. But yeah, I, 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 I like the, you know I like having curtains and lights and, and what have you. I think it protects you. Yeah. Is that why you feel like the suit and the yeah? I, I think so. I think. Do you know it really helps when I do. Um, there's a comedy club in Osan in in Korea, which is near to an American army base. Okay. Yeah, I think I've heard of this one. And. Uh, I went there in 2015 for a competition, and it was all—it was basically all Americans, I think, competing in the competition. And the crowd was like 98% big American uh, army men, Marines, <laughs> yeah, like, right? Whatever the word is, yeah. and then a couple of their wives. Yeah. And I, having the suit, because I, I, I wear this slightly obscene, slightly you know, in-your-face green jacket. Having that meant that I felt really protected. That they were like, oh, this is just a kind of crazy English character. And so in those instances, I kind of turned up my Englishness or my poshness or whatever it is. I I try and I find that I do that. Yeah, like uh, if I get nervous on stage or sometimes I'll I'll over I don't know, grit it up. Yeah, like yeah, I yeah. said stum eight a year ago. I've never said stum in my life. Well, I said a really silly word tonight, didn't I? Which, which got a laugh because oh, the audience, yeah, uh, the audience uh, rugby pumpy or rugby pumpy. I say deliberately. There was a really a word which didn't seem like it should have come out of my mouth, and the audience acknowledged that. I'm like, we know that you didn't mean to say that. So I had to acknowledge back. I was like, yeah, you've caught me out. Uh, I'll have to watch the video back. I want to remember that. Comedy competition in uh, Korea. Oh yeah, yeah, that's what it was. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of felt empowered.
good. I found out by going, this isn't me anymore. This is my on-stage character. Yeah. Uh, or as Stuart Lee would call it, the, the comedian Stuart Lee. I'm a comedian. Uh, I don't think I can aggrand, aggrand, aggrandize myself to call myself a comedian yet, but, you know, that idea. Yeah, do you differentiate between comic and comedian? Is there a difference? <laughs> there's, there's a distinction in Japanese where there's a, there is a word, wanaigeni, which means uh, a comedy entertainer, yeah. and the word comedian, which is taken straight from the English. And there is a bit of a distinction. A comedian is someone that, that performs kind of the art of comedy, mm. if I don't want to sound too Whereas a wanaigeni is, is someone a little bit more general. Uh, you do the kind of stuff where you like hang out behind a curtain and you pretend like someone else's hand is pulling you across. Well, I think that, would be, that, that, that would be a wanaigeni. Well, of course, Japan, you probably know this, has manzai, right? Japan doesn't have stand-up. They have what's called manzai, which is, if you know Chinese comedy, it's like the Chinese cross-talk. Yeah. Uh, and there's basically two people on stage, a classic double act set-up, which is uh, a straight man and a funny man. Uh, they call it a bokeh and a tsukomi. The bokeh is kind of presenting the presenting the idea, and the tsukomi is the one that pulls the idea back again. So kind of like the audience doing stand-up, yeah, right. The audience is our tsukomi in stand-up because we're alone, and um, they do have Japan does have a have a history of uh, like solo performers like Rakugo, you know, the, yeah. the sitting down. Storytelling stuff. Comedy is this. Yeah. Yeah. The fan and yeah, the right. your only two parts. But that's, a, that's definitely very, very theatrical. Yeah. And the, the the comedians are not telling personal stories. They have their personal take on whatever on story the they're telling. Stories, but they're you know they're kind of Aesop's Fables style yeah. stories. And then uh, they have the props as well. The, the fan and uh, one other thing. Oh, like a handkerchief. Handkerchief. That's right. And then those then those props are used to represent certain things. You know, like in ballet, there are certain moves which this means hello, even though yeah. it doesn't like hello. Uh, the same is true of Rakugo. Holding the, the handkerchief in one way and holding the fan this way means eating rice. Yeah, well, there's a holding the fan up like it's an umbrella. Oh, yeah, okay. You, you know, you know this yeah, yeah. better than I do, I'm sure. But yeah, so, so I think Rakugo is quite far removed from stand-up because there's almost no... There's no real personality or opinion. Kind and of direct interaction with the audience. No, none, 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 none at all. Um, it's it's very much within its own its own framework. Before the record goes start, there's a thing. I'm not sure whether this has always existed. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm not sure whether this has always existed. The record guy I've seen, and I regret to say I haven't seen much. Before they start their stories, where they're doing the voices and the characters, yeah. they do kind of pick up the news and kind of talk about, oh, hey, this happened. Which, to me, Like seems, a topical news show, kind of No, well, just kind of, it seems like kind of stand-up-y. Yeah. Right? Or, or kind of talking about themselves, or... It's hard to explain, but definitely before they jump into the storytelling part of it, they do do something which is quite similar to stand-up. Uh, and, you know, will almost go as far as give their opinions. Because yeah. I think stand-up is defined uh, in, a, in a big part by... The, the comedian giving something of themselves, right? mm -hmm. an opinion or an emotional output, or oh, yeah, yeah, or a personal story, right? And I, I, and I think that's what makes stand up stand up. Obviously, anything anything goes in stand up if you've got the mic on stage. Yeah. But I think what's typically stand up is the is the comedian giving something of themselves, which I don't think is true of Rakugo, and it's definitely not true of Manzai, the double act. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what's interesting? Well, no, no. It's just, what's interesting as a foreign stand-up comedian in Japan is not only are the audience not used mm. to 
having a comedian say, here's what I think about the world. It's all like, they're, they're not used to that, and then they're certainly not used to a foreigner saying it. So, you know, there's, yeah, I've got a long way to go to do stand-up exactly as I want to do it. Right, so you also do stand-up in Japanese as well? Yeah, not as often, but I do. Because um, I think it's a, I think it's a good discipline. Like, I think I've written some really good jokes because I've tried to do them in Japanese. Because yeah. my, my, my Japanese is alright, but it's not brilliant. And so, because I'm, I'm so restricted, I kind of have to be a bit more creative. So, um, sometimes I kind of come up with like really... Oh, just a number 13 bus if anyone's uh, giving track. <laughs> Local reference there. <laughs> uh, because, I can, because I'm quite restricted in what I can say, what I say has to be intrinsically funny. Right? I can't just get away with a little linguistic flourish to pull a crowd back. So, um, like I, I, a really good example of this is I wrote a joke about um, always, always waking up late. Yeah. And I wanted to buy an alarm clock. And so I bought an alarm clock on Amazon using Amazon Prime. And I set the delivery time for 9am. So the guy who rang the doorbell woke me up. I was like, thank you very much, I'll return the item. <laughs> and that, that, that idea... <laughs> I've never really made it work in English, actually, but that idea... Oh, no, no, no! I just, it's, like, it's just like an intrinsically funny little... Yeah, yeah. You know, a bit of... I don't know, mental acrobatics. It kind of takes yeah. you from one, one concept to another. Yeah, I probably would work in many different languages. Maybe so. But, but I came up with it because I was trying to write a joke in Japanese. In Japanese. What can I say? So I know the crosstalk in uh, Chinese often has a lot of... Uh, Linguistic acrobatics. Yeah. So it's about like, a lot of it is just about puns, puns and also like speaking Chinese oh, in a very quick way and also oh, a very that's clear way. And, like, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And I noticed um, one of my friends in Japan, uh, one of my very close friends in Japan, Bobby, who works as a TV presenter, um, worked with two um, comedians who do manzai and they gave. Uh, tickets to go and see their show. We went mm. to go and watch it. And one thing that I was very impressed by is their little skits, these four or five minute skits, were so tightly rehearsed. It, and it was clear that they were just doing it like clockwork. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there was really, really carefully thought about timing. Uh, every word that they were saying was obviously tightly scripted. On the one hand, someone that's a big fan of stand-up is kind of thinking, oh, but I know you guys are really funny improvisers and I know that you could make this more special if you you know, loosened up, loosened up and you know, went off script. But obviously that's not their styles or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely defined by that. It's also defined by, they kind of take an idea, they create a world, and then they take that world to, to the nth degree. That is to say they'll go, someone will make a little slip up. Yeah. Right? They'll, 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 they'll make a slip up which is creating an alternative reality. Then they'll dive into that alternative reality and see, see the outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they'll kind of play the, the same idea, the same sketch over and over again with different oh, and different variations. Yeah, which is a little bit like, I suppose, in stand-up comedy, the act-out. But they do the yeah. act-out like four or five times, each with a new idea added in. I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't think I'm a fan of Manzai, if I'm being honest. Because what I really like about stand-up doesn't exist in Manzai, which is the feeling that this could only happen tonight. Like, I definitely feel that the audience tonight because of you know the there was a couple of hecklers and there yeah. were latecomers and, and whatever. Whatever I said in response to that, even if it wasn't as funny as my material, even if it was forgettable, I think the audience would go away thinking that you know that clearly couldn't have been rehearsed. That's obviously 
something in the moment. Yeah. And, you need and I just think that feeling, even if what I said wasn't particularly impressive or clever, the fact that it happened is really exciting. that live experience. Yeah. And, well, from my experience of Manzai to date, I don't think you get that feeling. Yeah. And what's interesting is the Japanese audience seemed to respond really, really well to jokes which they already knew. Right? Yeah, okay, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, like you have a, an artist's like your favourite. This is the number 12M. 12M. What does the M mean? Monthly, I don't know. Monthly. That comes to one's you know, so like you have a favourite song from an artist and you can't wait for them to play it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know this song. Yeah, oh, it's brilliant. The, the audience says, it's, oh, the, the, the joke about the fish. That, and, you know, that, I don't know, a couple, a couple of comedians have this, right? Like Rod Gilbert, when he was doing stand-up, his um, suitcase routine, where, when he comes out with just the handle of his suitcase. Yeah. And he says, yeah, I laugh the first two or three times that came around the left carousel. And I think the audience, I don't know. It's just such a great bit of comedy that people apparently requested requested it to him. Really? Yeah. But I didn't. Yeah. I remember seeing a stand-up um, back in Cardiff, and the show he was doing was pretty much the same show that was, like, the DVD was out already. Yeah. And so every time he went into a joke or into a routine, people were laughing just after the setup before he delivered the punchline. Yeah, 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 great. And it was so awkward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I know lots of comments say that once you do the joke on TV, that's it. You have to abandon yeah. it. It's gone. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's a great feeling to have, a, to have material that's so good. The audience wants to see it again. And I kind of believe it with our shows. I've definitely seen our shows where I can, where I think to myself, oh, I, I could easily sit through that again. Yeah. But then I'm not appreciating it for the, the laughs in each moment, but sure. for, the, for, the, for the piece. I mean, I have the same thing with sitcoms. Because oh, yeah, those yeah. are alive, yeah. you don't care if it comes back sense. again. But, you know, like, would, would you... I don't know, I suppose doing this, you do see the same 10-minute sets over and over again. Yeah. And well, I suppose I'm still listening each time. I'm still interested. But I suppose I'm interested, not from an audience perspective. Yeah, yeah I'm interested yeah. from a comic's perspective of, I wonder if they're going to do it the same. Or can they do it better? I wonder what that guy's shouting. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like every time I'm listening to the same 10 minutes again, I'm finding something interesting in it. Because either I know the comic or... You know, yeah, or he said it different tonight. Right. Or changes. Right, but it's just for an audience. They don't, they're not that bad. They're not looking for it. They're not that invested. Yeah. Mm. I'd love to write a joke. One thing I would like to do is eventually have a joke where the audience can't help but think of that joke at some moment in their life. Okay. So the best example I've got of that is um, I wish I could credit the joke, but I can't. But it's um, I went to the airport information desk and I asked them, okay, how many airports are there in the world? And they said, oh, I don't know. And so every time I go to an airport, you think of that joke. I think of that joke, and I would love that. Like that's kind of an ambition of mine. That I write something that's so, Sticks so that. yeah, that's so kind of under your nose, earworm. Yeah, I don't know. That, that that's a, a kind of a little personal ambition. I haven't got that yet. But I'd like, I'd like to. Do that. You are also on TV, television in uh, yeah. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, I wouldn't mind talking about it. I've been doing a lot less of it, if I'm being honest. I think, yeah, um, yeah I've, I've been a little bit more choosy with what I do. Mm. Only because, I mean, 
I'm good people that know Japanese TV will know that it's not held in the highest esteem around the world. Yeah. And even when I'm working as a reporter, I have basically no journalistic integrity at all. Like it will be all the programs are sponsored by someone that has a you know an interest oh, in saying the right thing or right. Uh, like, you know, okay. I hate mushrooms. I, uh, for some reason, I just I never like mushrooms. And I had to go and do a report on a mushroom farm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm not really the best guy for this job. Yes. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. The script's already been written. So all of my like, thoughts about the mushrooms are already pre-decided. We can cut away. So we literally did. I placed the mushroom in my mouth, gave a little look to the camera, and then cut. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, so, so kind of some of the stuff which I think isn't helping me uh, in my ambition to be a great comedian, yeah. I just don't do. Because you want it. So is it a case that you want to be more honest in the well, portrayal of yourself? Yeah, well, yeah. Because otherwise, you just kind of become the token foreigner. And there are loads of people in Japan that really love the idea of being on TV, and it's been cool to show their friends. And those opportunities exist, and they, sh you know, people should do it if they want to do it. But if I'm thinking of this as a job, then I think I, I think I'm right in only picking stuff which has some kind of merit for me and that merit is either an experience in a certain aspect of TV yeah. or um, money. <laughs> it's very rewarding. Yeah, okay. and, and, and so when I'm kind of asked, oh, will you come on this program for free? Going down to the seven level. Okay. 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 So, you know, so when I'm asked, you know, will you go on this program and give your opinion on something? For either free or little money at all. I'm normally now inclined to say no because it, because it would just be doing it for the sake of being on TV. I don't think it would increase my profile very much. Uh, what I found was really effective actually in Japan is radio. But in terms of getting people to come to my shows, okay, yeah, yeah. I haven't found TV to be that effective in kind of people watching it and going, oh, it must go buy a ticket. Yeah. But you do a radio show, particularly a popular one, even as a guest for like 15, 20 minutes, yeah. and you can kind of see on the website that it'll spike a people that listen and go, oh. So, yeah. So the English language shows are the Japanese Oh, Japanese. Shows. Japanese. 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 Um, so I, uh, I was in a taxi in Bangkok with a Japanese comedian. Zenjiro. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was in Jura. Who else would it be? Who else would it be? Who else would it be? He took a call from uh, an Osaka uh, radio station while we were in the taxi. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was having a good interview. And he was also, he was very good multitasking. He was, he was like, filming, as well, filming himself he? while he's being recorded. You know what he does with those films? He, I mean, he's a, he's a powerhouse, really. He creates his own DVDs, like backstage behind his tours, yeah. and, and flogs them at his shows. So he does a show and he's, sell he's selling these, like, but he does everything himself. He films it himself, edits it himself, yeah. even like burns the DVDs himself. <laughs> and then at the end of a show he flogs them right for 2,000 yen. Uh, That's pretty good. Yeah, but the thing is he's got, he's got die-hard fans. Yeah. Because he used to be on TV a lot. Sure. I mean, I saw him on uh, Jonathan Ross's Japanorama. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so, so I mean, but, you know, in Japan he was... He was on some of the biggest uh, primetime TV shows there were. Yeah. Uh, I th well, ask different people, you get different stories. But he had a big fallout with his management, uh, which is the biggest. I I'm cool to say this because he says this on stage too. Okay. Uh, I, I think I know when to stop this story. <laughs> um, but from what I understand, he had a bit of a fallout with his management, which is one of the biggest uh, talent management. Uh, well, no, sorry, the biggest talent management company in Japan. 
And then on that basis, he wanted to kind of find his own niche. Okay. So he started doing stand-up in English. Yeah. And it was at that stage where he was like, right, I'm going to go abroad and try in English. Or he wanted to try Manzai where his partner was a robot. The robot, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that's something that, that I really admire about, about Zenjiro. He is, you know, he's constantly trying to reinvent himself. And we've done uh, quite a few shows together now. Whenever he's in Kyushu uh, on tour, we'll always make sure to do some shows together. I, I once tried Manzai with him, yeah, just for the experience, uh, which was fun. I was the bokeh, so I was kind of the, the straight man. Or, no, in fact, what, the, what he said to me was really interesting. He said, all you need to do is do stand-up like material, and I'll just come in when I need to. And so what he was kind of doing is, you know when the audience notices that you've said something a bit odd? Yeah. And they're going to jump in with a laugh? He was just preempting that laugh and saying something. Or kind of going, that's not the case. Uh, what was it? I think I did a joke about how um, Japanese people always are proud of how their trains are on time. Yeah. Uh, and it's part of Japanese tradition that their trains are on time. Yeah, yeah, if uh, it's late. If it's but over five or ten minutes, they, they you'll apologize. get a slip yeah, and you can show it to your right. boss. And then I was like, um, but, you know, you call this Japanese tradition, um, but only because it's a good thing, right? Uh, you know, the train today was delayed by 30 minutes. And then without knowing where I was going with this, he then jumped in. All right, why was that? I went, oh, because there was a suicide on the line. And he goes, oh, that's Japanese tradition. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, he's, he's great. He's great. Yes. Uh, Are we cool for time? Uh, I mean, yeah, it was oh, one more, maybe one more question. Then. Do you want to talk about your language education? Yeah. Startup. Sure. Get that in there. Okay. Um, and then one quick fire. Okay. After that. Uh, yeah. That's about you. So now I'm I'm kind of done with uh, uni and my legal research stuff. Yeah. Um, my my main thing, my. Uh, day job, uh, which doesn't yet pay, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> is um, I've started a. Well, I started this a long time ago actually, but only in the last couple of years have we taken it seriously. A website to learn languages. So um, if anyone's interested in learning Japanese, we now have Japanese and Russian. Uh, then I encourage them to go and check it out because what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach languages online in a way that is the complete opposite of Duolingo, which is you maybe you've tried these apps where like you're just kind of mindlessly hunting for coins or. Okay, yeah, they try the gamification. Yeah, and, and what I realised, well, what we realised was, you you can just learn a language using a textbook and a great teacher. Like people do that all the time. So um, yeah, we we've kind of written these textbooks which have a bit of personality and a bit of humour and, and put them online, added audio. People seem to like it. And then now uh, we're working on a new project where we're trying to, um, we, well, we we are creating an app to teach uh, English to developing countries. Mm -hmm. Um, which again is trying to kind of be quite realistic about the about the learning process and, and kind of the lessons read like they're from your favourite teacher rather than from a dry textbook. Okay. And so I think a lot of the comedy has helped in this job because a lot of stand-up is about empathising with your audience and uh, if you find all this very boring feel free to cut it. <laughs> uh, but I don't mind at all. Okay, so uh, do you want to say what the last one, what the website is? Oh yeah, uh, lingualift.com. Uh, lingualift.com, and then if you want to find out the progress of the app, it's called Fluent Hammer. And as of today, uh, we've got stickers, stamps in the Line store. 
like with our, oh, with our little yeah. mascot. The messaging app. Yeah. No. So if you're oh, in, the messaging apps are available. If you're in Japan and you care, then go and get that. Yeah. Okay, I copied this one off of uh, a friend who copied it off of uh, TV. Okay. You probably can guess what TV program it is when I ask you. What is your favourite curse word? Um, Christ. There we go, that'll do. Because you can say it like this, Christ. Yeah. Thank you very much, Charlie. That was really fun. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Cool. Oh, no, I wasn't running. At the end, it sounds like I'm calling Ollie Charlie, but I'm actually just saying, cheers, Ollie.